You're listening to the Library Pros Podcast with Chris and Bob, a techie librarian and a computer IT guy discussing libraries, technology, and all things this side of the reference desk. Thanks, Carl. Hi, and welcome to episode three of the Library Pros Podcast. I'm Chris. And I'm Bob. And today we're coming to you from the Sachem Public Library in Holbrook, New York. If this is your first time listening, thanks for coming. The Library Pros podcast is produced bi-monthly, so don't forget to check us out and subscribe to our RSS feed, iTunes, Android, email, and now on Google Play. Links and notes from today's podcast can be found on our website, www.thelibrarypros.com, or on Twitter, at The Library Pros, or uh, on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash The Library Pros. So today, we uh, are going to have our guest, we're going to have our guest, our guest is Nick Tanzi. Nick is the head of digital services at the Mastic Mariches Shirley Community Library in Shirley, New York, and the president of the Computer and Technical Services Group, which is a division of the Suffolk County Library Association, and NILA, uh, which is the New York Library Association. And he's also, also the author of the book, Making the Most of Digital Collections Through Training and Outreach, an Innovative Librarian's Guide, which is available at Amazon.com and through regular channels of book ordering. Hi, Nick. How's it going? Good. Welcome to the show. Uh, Nick is going to talk to us about uh, working with digital collections, training both staff and patrons, and the challenges of setting up digital services in a library and the best practices for those libraries. But first, we wanted to talk to Nick about himself and the Mastic Mariches uh, Shirley Community Library, which we're just going to call Mastic Mariches at this point because it's a tongue twister, right? That works. Yeah, that works. So tell us how you got started in the library field. Where did you uh, get your master's degree? Uh, so I actually started it at Stony Brook and then finished it at Queens College. Um, you know, so state school, save some money. <laughs> <laughs> that makes some sense. But, um, um, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no that's okay. Okay. Um, so where was your first library job? So it was at the community library, and uh, I think like a lot of folks, I started out as a page, uh, worked my way up to a clerk. At the same time, I was in uh, college, and I, you know, I, I was getting my undergrad in history, and I uh, ultimately decided to go into library school, became a trainee at the community library, and then, um, you know, stuck around. <laughs> <laughs> they couldn't get rid of you, huh? No, no. Um, so what I always find interesting is, you know, uh, librarians, it's very rare that you get somebody who, who grew up wanting to be a librarian, and then you transition, obviously, from some other major or some other practice or career. Um, so tell me a little bit about um, when you got involved in the digital end of libraries, because when we all kind of started, it wasn't what it is now, where there's a lot more technology involved in things. In fact, um, I don't think any of us were around during the card catalog, but I can distinctly remember, you know, the first um, interface for the catalog was DOS-based. It was command-driven and keystroke-driven. Um, so, and that was the technology of the time. There were no iPhones. There were no iPods. You know, if, if you had a, an MP3 player, it probably had the word Zune on it. Hmm. And I can only speak for myself. It was, you know, before even that was around. So tell us how you kind of developed and evolved into the digital end of libraries. So uh, it's actually kind of interesting because, again, my background was in history. I had planned on being a history teacher. Um, so I had a bachelor's degree in history, and now I'm working as a uh, full-time librarian, but um, in the children's department. 
and I had some website responsibilities and then, you know, because I was interested in technology, I did some programs um, involving technology. And what would end up happening is, is when we were doing anything staff training or anything that was library wide, like the website, I had a hand in it. So over time, I was working more for other departments, between departments, than I was in the children's department. And so about 2010, I was approached about becoming the digital services librarian at Mastic. So you started in children's then? I started in children's. That's interesting, because yeah. you don't hear a lot about males being in, in the children's department. Right. Yeah, that, that, that's, that's actually a unique um, perspective, right? Don't you think? Yeah, yeah. Especially with the technology end of things. Right. I mean, you know, it was at the time, I don't think I had ever planned on being a children's librarian, but when a, a full-time job opened up in Suffolk County, you, you grabbed it. So right. it was in children's, and that's where I went. And yeah. uh, it actually it was a good time. That's great. So tell us a little bit about uh, Master Merch's uh, Shirley Community Library. Um, how many patrons resides in the district? I'm not going to hold you to an exact count. But. Right. Well, we're pretty saturated in terms of cardholders. So I think we have right around 60,000 people in the Tri-Hamlet area and 45,000, 50,000 cardholders. So, you know. That is kind of impressive yeah. to have that many cardholders in the district. Yeah. Now, when you mean Tri Hamlet, tell, can you explain to people what that means? So we have a sprawling district. We're uh, Mastic, Mastic Beach, Shirley. Um, we have contract patrons from Eastport and South Manor. Um, so really, we're just a whole amalgam of very uh, different uh, communities that are all kind of served by the community library. So William Floyd School District. We actually the school district is our tax lines. Right, and that's pretty standard in, in Suffolk County, New York, and I think in Nassau County, too, for the most part. Mm -hmm. the, the, the library district lines also follow school district lines. Can you explain just for people who may not understand what a contract patron is? So in New York State, it's, you know, uh, library service is mandated. So for folks that don't have a library nearby, they have the option to choose. So once a year, they're actually able to choose a library that's relatively close to them. Um, so we have folks that opt in each year um, from some of the, uh, like I said, South uh, Eastport, South Manor. So they actually have the option to choose, and uh, we've done very well. You know, it's it's kind of as something we're proud of that uh, very often when given the chance to choose, they choose us. Okay. Now, in terms of um, digital services, what does Mastic offer um, their patrons? Now, I know. For those of us that are in Suffolk County, New York, we understand that there is the consortia. There's the Suffolk County Library Service, and we all, all the libraries have a buy-in for uh, group purchases of databases and, and products that are available. Can you tell us a little bit about what you have that may be a little bit unique from the rest of the Suffolk County Library System? Um, so we've uh, invested a lot in 3D printing now. So um, we have a public 3D print service where folks can send us their files, build their own, find ones, and... Uh, We'll render those prints. We also offer classes on design in the same um, digitization services with uh, photos and music. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of staff training, uh, I should say a lot of patron training opportunities. Mm -hmm. Well, it, what's, what's interesting to me too is now you're a department head for a department that didn't exist seven, eight years ago. Right. Tell me a little bit about the department that, that you're in charge of. So digital services, it was interesting. 2010, 
I basically became the digital services librarian, which was a department of one. So it was me reporting directly to our director. Um, so, you know, it's, it's empowering, but it's a little bit frightening too, because now you have this broad mandate to, you know, improve technology and the services and what the two, um, and you're just reporting directly to the director. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, it can be a little intimidating, right? Yeah. So really, I mean, that's when, uh, really staff training became important because how do you make your impact felt when you're one person and we're, you know, a large library, we have 170 employees. So okay. 170, yeah, 170. Wow, yeah, I would have never guessed. That's yeah. a, that's a lot of people. Yeah, three quarters uh, of our staff is part time. Mm -hmm. So tell me what happened. Were you approached by the director to say we'd like to start this, or we'd like you to to head this department of one, or was it something that you had an idea, or something that kind of morphed over time and just kind of evolved into something like that? And then how did it evolve from a department of one if it's not a department of one anymore? Right. So um, basically, I had been working on things that were, you know, technology based and um, really crossed the line between just children's where I was doing stuff like working on a library app that everybody had an interest in. So eventually the director approached me and said, do you, uh, are you interested in this position? And as it was described, yeah, it was interesting. Oh, yeah, sure. So, um, yeah, so I... Uh, took the job as the uh, head of digital services, or I should say the digital services librarian, which mm -hmm. existed as a department of one. And then really what ends up happening is, is you do everything you can. You're there, you know, you work 40 hours a week and there's only so many things you can do in that time. Sure. So eventually you, uh, you know, you approach the director and say, love to do more, but you need more resources. And um, from there it grew. So I, um, you know, I got another librarian to help out, particularly things like one-on-one uh, -on -one tech appointments. And, you know, at the community library, we're doing 350 one-on-one -on -one tech appointments uh, a year. So it's just a very staff-intensive uh, endeavor. Right. So it's the, just you and that one other person doing the one-on-ones. The uh, now there's a couple of us, but it, essentially what would happen is, is we'd do all we could do with what we had, and mm -hmm. then. Um, when we want to do more, we would add staff. Um, as obviously website became more important, um, we were able to add a graphic designer to staff, which is just hugely important now um, from everything from social media marketing to uh, just, you know, having your website look up to snuff. That's great. That's pretty incredible. It is. I mean, if you look at what, what that library did when they hired Nick and then when they made him a department manager, there was no guarantee that that was going to work. You know, so they were putting kind of like a, a lot of eggs in one basket to say, you know, we see a need digital services. We see a need to hire uh, not only one person, but now make him a department head, make him build his own his own department. And, you know, to the credit of the administration over there, th it worked out. And now Nick's added more people underneath it. We've talked about this at, at, at pretty great length, how they really pushed the envelope and put a lot on the line. Sure. And I think, you know, most libraries don't do that. Mm -hmm. They're they're not willing to push the envelope and and potentially fail, you know, to see the successes, and what you're looking at now is a tremendous success in Suffolk County. And I mean, right from the marketing to, to the you know all the stuff that he's going to tell you about in a couple minutes, it's huge. It's, it's just probably one of the most innovative libraries in the county. 
Yeah, I would. I would have to agree with that because yeah. some of the things that you see coming out of Mastico, you know, you say to yourself, "Wow, that's amazing." How yeah. can you know? How can we take that and maybe right. use that? And you know, a lot of times, the stuff that you're doing over at Mastic is a blueprint for everyone else. I mean, you, you personally, and you, as you know, during as, during your tenure as the, the head of the department, kind of paved the way with you and between you and Ellen over at Half Hollow Hills with 3D printing. Oh, she's going to have to pay us. I know, right? You mentioned her in another podcast. Another podcast. Oh, man, that is like 50 bucks right there. <laughs> payola, payola. I, I always joke whenever we do something new that, you yeah. know, I tell folks either it'll be awesome and, you know, you can do it or it'll be a cautionary tale. Right. So. But see, <laughs> see, I mean, if anything comes out of this podcast, it should be that. That's because, right. Because that's what, what people are missing that work in libraries, what directors are missing what board members are missing, what staff in general is missing, what department managers can be missing, is is the 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 ability to fail, or the ability to succeed, and empowering their staff to do that. You know, I mean, boards from all over the country are afraid that the library is going to fail. Right. But they're not really looking at the stats and seeing that a lot of them are already failing. So to do things like what Mastix is doing is not only giving them more relevance, but look at their patron base. I mean, he just said he's got like 60, correct me if I'm wrong, but 60,000 some odd as a patron base, and he's got 45 to 50,000 folks coming to the library. I, I that percentage ask, is I ask amazing. You to, I ask you to try and find the same percentage in the state where you're doing that, and, and it's, it's going to be pretty impossible. That's a high so, traffic, high use. And you could argue, well, that you know, the community needs the library. Well, listen, if you give folks relevance, every community needs the library. So, I mean, you got to look at what they're doing, why they're doing it, and how you can, you know, copy-paste it to your, you know, uh, you know. So it's a great great testament to what they're doing over there. Absolutely, yeah, sure. So tell me a little bit about the technologies that you have in your department that you make available to the Mastix, uh, Mastic Merchants, Shirley uh, population. So early on, we went really into device lending, you know, uh, e-readers and uh, tablets. Do you have a preference which one you, you, that you see go out more? Uh, in terms of e-reader, we were kind of limited in that uh, Amazon wasn't really clear to us how comfortable they were with us lending Kindles. <laughs> <laughs> so it pushed us in the direction of early on we did um, Sony readers um, because uh, I guess mid-2000s, Sony was actually very good about reaching out to libraries. And uh, we were one of 30 uh, libraries that was part of a pilot for the Sony Library Reader Program. Okay. We remember early on, e-readers are new, staff isn't really sure how they work, um, and Sony actually sent a rep, um, gave us free devices, wow. a, uh, almost like a commercial-style kiosk, um, some Sony readers, and some discounted prices. So early on, we actually we went into Sony readers. Now, obviously, they didn't last, um, but just introducing patrons and staff to the technology, that was helpful. But... Uh, after that, we really invested in the Nook because, um, you know, uh, a good portion of our community, you know, is working class, um, can really struggle sometimes economically. And it's important for us to have what I call try before you buy. Um, sure. Seventy, eighty dollars for an e-reader doesn't sound like a lot for, you know, for a lot of folks, but... Um, not everybody can afford to make a mistake so with that kind of money. And so they want to make mm -hmm. sure that they're even comfortable with the technology before they go and invest that. So early on, a lot of device lending, um, get people comfortable with the concept of e-reading. Sure. 
Um, but more contemporary technology that we're doing, obviously we're, we're investing a lot in 3D printing, um, design classes, and um, really that's starting to grow. Tell me a little bit more about the, the 3D printing end of things. Now, I know that, like I said before, you, you were one of the pioneers in, in the county with regard to making it available to the public. Um, tell us about when you first introduced it and what the interest level was and where it has gone since then. So basically, uh, I think we're all familiar with when you're near the end of the fiscal year and you have a little bit of money, you know, a lot of times everybody blows their book budget because they... No. They realize, oh, yeah. they've underspent. And, um, you know, we had uh, a little bit of money. And mm -hmm. at the same time, that coincided with uh, MakerBot having a sale on their uh, experimental MakerBot 2X printer. So we felt like the stores had aligned. And uh, we went out. <laughs> as a fire uh, sale. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and we uh, purchased our MakerBot. Uh, so that was fun because we basically bought mm -hmm. it and then learned after the fact, obviously, how to use it. So we bought it uh, right before July, which is the end of, you know, start of mm. our fiscal year, so late June, I guess. And then um, we spent the summer actually learning how it worked and planning uh, curriculum and programs around it. And what we decided to do was to offer programs actually for children first, who I think are often overlooked when we think 3D printing. What we want to do is Children are incredibly honest mm. in terms of assessing a program or anything for that matter. <laughs> um, but also they don't have the same expectation where they're going to go out and prototype. That's not what they're thinking. They're thinking, I'm going to make something. Right. Sure. So it was very important to us that we didn't just get a printer and we're not just printing tchotchkes and it was just a, a gimmick, you know? Sure. Um, we wanted to teach design and yeah. teach them actually how to, to build, not just hit a button. So, uh, again, so we designed programs first for our kids, um, and then we moved on to teens, mm. uh, some standalone programs, and eventually turned that into a, um, a printing club. And then finally started offering introductory courses for adults, but we realized at that point that we were going to have to have a public print service mm. because the natural inclination is once you know how to design, you want to come and you want to print. Sure. So we made sure that we had a 3D print um, a public 3D printing policy in place that was adopted by the board so that then adults could learn those requisite mm -hmm. skills and come in and print. Cool. And that was kind of the evolution of it. That is uh, actually quite detailed in um, the way you went about handling it, too. Because yeah, I, I think always a port happenstance, but as it <laughs> progressed, like, this is the way to do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you kind of almost have to, especially when you're dealing with, you know, different age ranges, usually you know, starting with kids and teens and then kind of dragging the, the parents first and then the adults into it. So you are seeing cross-departmental usage of the equipment then. Yeah, so, you know, a 3D printer is a very finicky creature. And, you know, especially the one we got, the MakerBot 2X, actually says experimental on the side, which, nice. you know, it's going to tell <laughs> you there's going to be some maintenance involved. <laughs> Um, so don't leave it on and go home. <laughs> right. So uh, with a lot of what we do, it tends to be an ink drop approach where we teach staff, you know, we'll do a program and then we'll do a program with them. And then eventually they take more of a hand in it. Um, so at this point now with some of the design classes, the children's librarians can actually teach the class. Um, but generally the printer itself, that's digital services that handles it mm. because 
too many hands, it'll get miscalibrated or yeah. something breaks. And it's, Deal it's with just the extruder issues. Right. So, you know, there's, we have uh, three people on hand um, that are able, they're allowed to touch the machine um, <laughs> beyond just printing, but actually doing some maintenance and calibration and whatnot. Well, you know, it's interesting that you said, you know, too many people touching it can, you know, mess it up. How do you make a determination whether or not the technology should be in your department versus being in teens or being in adults? I mean, obviously, if, if, there's, if it's technology-based, then chances are it's going to end up with you. But how is that determination made, not just with 3D printing, but with, let's say, you know, e-reader lending or, you know, database, you know, access or things like that? How do you make that, that determination? And as a follow-up question to that, where is your IT department? With regard to working with you, is it a hand-in-hand -hand thing? Is it are they are you an offshoot of them, or are they independent departments? So it's always an interesting gray area, and I think what ultimately happens is I don't think anything stays in digital services forever. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of stuff starts in digital services, and then it moves on. I think as three D printing is more widely adopted, you're going to see it's going to be once you have one in everybody's house. <laughs> it's not going to be digital services anymore. It's right. just, you know, uh, we've often talked about the line between adult reference and digital services, mm -hmm. IT and digital services. So just looking at 3D printing, uh, I think the way I look at it is, is digital services has the time and opportunity to investigate something. So we investigated 3D printing. We learned how it worked. We became comfortable with it, and that put us in the spot where we could run it and eventually train staff on it. And at a certain point, there's a letting go. Right now, where that's at is that staff is largely doing the design process, and we're still maintaining the equipment. Mm -hmm. um, overall, though, the distinction between IT and digital services, I think, is the actual service portion of it. Mm -hmm. um, IT more or less is serving our internal customers. They're also, I guess, they are serving our patrons as well. But it's more, and this isn't to be dismissive, but it's almost like the plumbing it's the stuff that remember bob is looking at you i know right bob's now. looking oh, okay. at me no it's all right bob is bob <laughs> is in that end of it. i agree i totally understand no, but I think, that end i think bob can <laughs> tell you it's you know sometimes that's where it could be thankless is there's just an expectation stuff is working right. and when it's not working it's that's utility, when it yeah. is noticed right. it's like you know. a utility now is what exactly that's right. better maybe than yeah. plumbing but yeah. it is it's absolutely a, a more of a utility yeah. um so server-side stuff is handled by IT, the hardware, um, you know, maintenance, repair, is them. We're more of the uh, training, um, where the services are for patron, staff instruction, patron instruction. Um, that's where we come into place. Mm. Um, when we're looking at a new service, when we're curating a digital collection, that's us. That's it, it almost sounds like you are for lack of a better way to describe it, almost a liaison between the IT department, which primarily, and I know, Bob, your philosophy on this may be different, where they're sitting in the server room, you know, doing what they're doing, making sure the servers are working right, maintenance, checking databases, maybe, you know, you know, mirroring new computers to be put on the floor, all that kind of stuff, all the back end high, mm -hmm. um, what's the word I'm looking for? You know, it, it's more the technical end of it. Right where Nick's department kind of phases into the what, what I like to call the super end user um, experience, where you're being in, let's say, Nick's department, you're 
may, you may not know about server language right. and wiring and, and the nuts and bolts of it, but you will know every single part of an iPad, right. every single part of an e-reader, how it works, how if somebody comes in with a question, how to answer that question, almost like the expert super end, end super user. Yeah. And so it kind of, and Bob, you can speak to this, it takes a lot, it takes a lot of that stress yeah. dealing with a patron with a problem away from you guys and going to, and would end up being in a department where Nick is. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's, um, it, it sounds like IT really should be doing what they're doing, but have the patron and the staff uh, perspective in mind. So whatever IT is doing should serve the staff better and allow the staff to serve the patrons better. Um, some IT folks, quite frankly, aren't geared to be at the reference desk helping or, or, or shouldn't be anywhere near a patron in some, you know, in some instances. Sure. Um, but there are others that can, that can really help and assist and things like that. And it's great to see um, a department like Digital Services really make that connection between IT and the patrons. Um, and I think it's, it's important going forward knowing that you know, those server towers aren't always going to be there. You know, we've we've offshored a ton of stuff to Amazon sure. Web Services, um, and it's only going to get it's only going to get easier and better. Um, not to discredit what IT does, they're still obviously necessary, but it's more of a management role now, where we're managing things. Um, and hopefully, uh, if you do it right, you're you're really becoming um, you know you're a la you're, you're becoming an enabler. So you're enabling the digital services department to do what they do without stumbling. You know, so so the services are there. The Wi-Fi is up. The, the the iPads are syncing. They're connected. They're doing what they're supposed to do, and just making the patron experience that much better between you know every facet of what the library does. So that's kind of where they should, where I think it sounds like they're at. You know. Yeah, I mean, does that, that make sense to you, Nick? Yeah, I mean, a lot of times I think we feel like project managers in digital services. We're working between yeah. departments with departments, and IT is very often one of those departments. Yeah. Do you have, um, and I know we're going to talk a little bit later about staff training and some of the other things that you used to talk about in your book. Um, but it, He has a book? Yeah, I heard these. He's got a book. What, what's the name of the book? <laughs> well, let's do this right. Come on, what's the name of the book? Wait, it's on the first page. Hold on. I can read it. Check it out. Ready? Go ahead. The Innovative Librarian's Guide, uh, Making the Most of Digital Collections Through Training and Outreach. 50 bucks. I want 50 bucks. 50 bucks. <laughs> wow. Ellen Druda's mentioned. Ellen, right? Every time we met Ellen Druda, Ellen, that's sure. 50 bucks. So now every time I say, wait, making the most of digital collections for training and outreach, <laughs> the Innovative Librarian's Guide, which is available at Amazon.com. <laughs> and, and that was the revised title, right? That's, that's 80 bucks. 80 bucks. 80 bucks. That's nice. awesome. No, it's, it's actually an incredible read. Yeah, it's actually, yeah, I spent a lot of time so, looking at it, too, and thinking, cool. how could I use some of this stuff here at Sagem? I tried to get a free one, and he was like, no, 50 bucks. 50 bucks. Yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't give my mom a free one. I'm not giving you one. Did you get, <laughs> how much does he charge to get a sign? I, I don't know. Oh, signed. That's, signed. That's another yeah. 25. Uh, yeah, that's if you've right. seen my handwriting, it, it definitely brings it doesn't matter. down. Just, no, it's, <laughs> just an, it's an NT with scribbles, right? Yeah. That's, that's it's right. An, the old NT. Oh, yeah. As opposed to Windows NT, right? Oh, please. Why would you do that to me? <laughs> Why would you do that to me? So in terms of training um, in your department, how do you go about training a new staff member who's in your department versus training somebody who is a teen librarian or a children's librarian or even an adult librarian? So basically, when you are training somebody that works out with the public, uh, on the public reference desk, you're thinking of more or less you're training them for your external customers, your patrons. 
And in our case, we're training them both for our external customers because we do one-on-one tech appointments and we, you know, we answer reference questions. Um, but we're also training them to work with our internal customers, our uh, the other staff. So it's a little more involved because, um, you know, they need to know our digital collections. They need to know how to train. They need to know everybody. You know, they need to be the mayor because they need to yeah. be able to work with the other departments, know who's who. Um, so it's really, it, it's a little more complicated for us because um, I kind of, I, I don't want them to just know, you know, knowing something and then knowing something well enough to teach it is two different things. And being comfortable with it, right? Right, yeah, sure, right. Because sure. you don't want to look like you're learning on the spot. It's, you know, we're all... Right. Uh, and that's kind of the struggle in library land now because... Mm-hmm. When a patient does come up to you, they anticipate that you have all the answers. You're sitting behind this big, beautiful desk, and you know it says reference or, you know, um, information desk. And so there, I think there is this expectation. And when somebody hands you, you know, um, a BlackBerry Playbook, and you look at it and go, you're thinking to yourself, Oh no, oh oh, you're having know. this panic attack inside. But on the outside, you're like, Okay, let's take a look at this and let's see how we can make this work. Right. Meanwhile, now what worse is the twenty dollar RCA? You know, oh the CVS tablets. Oh the CVS tablets from RCA. They're like nineteen ninety five, and you yeah. get it. And it's like oh, I can't even get into settings. It's running so Android two point two. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no. yeah. It's running Froyo or something. But to your point, it's like when when the patrons come in, they think that you are the be all end all of the services you offer. So Overdrive is a good example, and databases are a great example. They think that it's in the back in some server yes. closet. And go you go just get have the to guy. Go, fix it, you know? go get the guy who presses the buttons in the right. back to make yeah. that work. Have them reset something. Yeah, I subscribe to Overdrive, and you guys are Overdrive, right? And they, nobody's going to explain to them that it's a bigger service, and they don't want to hear that. They just want to make it work, you know. You know what's in, what I found interesting uh, it, from last uh, the last episode when I was up in Canton. Mm. They have a lot of the same. Now, obviously, they're still in New York State, but it is amazing to see even the North Country Library System having mm. some of the same services we have here in Suffolk County. Wow. And I guess it's true throughout the state and. In doing research, you know, just in general, we were having some issues with some services, mm-hmm. and just throwing it into Google, seeing that Oklahoma has the same services, yeah. and California, and Nevada, and Texas. So, it, I think when people are listening to our podcast, to our library people, and we say Overdrive, mm-hmm. I don't think we really need to explain what Overdrive is because it really is out there. Right. You know, is in in library land as I keep using library land as a term of art, that you know it's out there. And the product is so interconnected with libraries because it's, that's the marketing for mm-hmm. it that, you know, it's nice that you don't have to explain what Overdrive is. But yeah. you're right, though. They think it's, you know, it's like the Wizard of Oz. Pay no attention to the man behind right. the curtain. Yeah. Well, it becomes more about how we present the services to the patrons. And I, I guess, Nick, you could weigh in on this and tell me if you agree, you know, how we present the services to the staff, too. So when your department learns new services and things like that and they start training, you know, staff members on that, um, and then showing patrons, it's got to be presented in a comfortable way, you know, not oh that, that thing is down again. I don't know why it does it every Monday. You know, it just I will, we'll look into it for you and get back to you. Right. You know, but it uh, it's got to be a comfortable way, like you like you said. You know, they have to be trained enough to be not just knowledgeable on it, but actually comfortable with using it too. You sure. know, it's not going to be the first time they've checked out an audio book or returned an audio book or anything. So that's true. Um, but yeah, that's another example of what you guys are doing right. Right. It's always going to be a struggle anyways because, you know, for a long time, I think librarians, they have to, they're never quite comfortable being salespeople. Right. 
Um, but it's never enough just to be free. And even free isn't exactly true because it's tax dollars. But true. I think sometimes that's a comparison is, is yeah. folks are willing to wait for something because it's right. free, whether it's a book, whether it's an e-book. Mm. Um, and you got to be better than that. <laughs> yeah, right. absolutely. Okay. Well, thanks, Nick, for sharing what you do at Mastic. And, you know, thank you for what you do at Mastic because a lot of libraries look to see what you're doing and try to, I don't want to use the word copy, but try to use as inspiration in their own, in their own libraries uh, because so many different libraries do things differently that it, it is nice to see there are libraries that are the cut, at the cutting edge and doing things that people and other libraries can only look to and say, that's interesting, let's go with that. Right. So, you know, thank you for all of that. And oh, we're just going to. I, uh, I, I joke that uh, I don't want to be first to doing anything anymore. I want to be second. So, <laughs> <laughs> how it works out. And it's still kind of new, but I don't, uh, I don't have to make mistakes. I know you guys are pretty good at being first right now. So, yeah, definitely. It's good, good stuff. That's great. So, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to talk uh, to Nick a little bit more about his book and about some training and uh, some of the other things that he talked about in, uh, in the book. And again, the book is. Making the most of digital collections through training and outreach, innovative librarian's guide. Cha-ching, 50 bucks. <laughs> <laughs> so we will be back in just a moment. All right, we're back with Nick Tanzi, who is the head of digital services at the Mastic Merchant Shirley Community Library in Shirley, New York, and the author of the book, Making the Most of Digital Collections Through Training and Outreach, The Innovative Librarian's Guide. Okay, so we briefly talked about training and, and development in your department, uh, but we'd like to talk more about some of the areas discussed in your book. Uh, first, tell us about the book, and what was your motivation for writing the book? So... Basically, when I started in digital services, in order to make my, you know, I'm one person in a staff of 170. Mm. So to make my presence felt and to have the most impact, I had to look to staff training early. That's how you make more of you. <laughs> <laughs> you train mini-me's, mini right? Yes. You get minions. Um, so early on, um, I wanted to have the, a bigger impact on our digital collection uh, to maximize our investment get more out of uh, what we were spending and um, and I looked to staff training as a way of doing that also staff training was just always a frustration um, because at Mastix we just did, we had invested in a lot of different digital collections so we had you know overdrive ebooks and we had Zinio e-magazines and we had do you still have Zinio we still have Zinio still and Zinio. we have Flipster um, and mm -hmm. then we had um, Freegal Music and we have Hoopla, digital uh, movies, and now a bunch of other stuff. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, the so, language learning stuff too, right? Oh, yeah. So Mango and Pronunciator. Right. So I would you picture all these different services. And even if you could train all of your staff in a month on mm-hmm. each of these services, by the end of the year, you'd do it all over again. Mm-hmm. And really, it's impossible to do that much staff that quickly anyways. And inevitably, these services would change. And usually for the better, but when something looks different, when it's changed, the training, you almost have to start all over again. So you're not even necessarily getting that year out of it. So, you know, I I just thought there had to be a better way of doing it. And that's kind of what started me um, on the book, which, you know, really looks at more of a device-centered way of training. Okay. So... um when you, um, <clears throat> excuse me, when you first sat down and said, I need to write this book, what was the process? Because, I mean, it's one thing to sit and write a novel, not that I've ever written a novel, but, you know, even if you're sitting and writing a paper, you have something that you're starting with, you have a topic, and you kind of go with it. Did, did you do a lot of research before you started writing? Did you just let it flow and then let the research come in afterwards, or...? So a lot of it was based on my experience at the community library. Um, so I had kind of looked at just, you know, really the, the, the opening chapter is the challenges facing a library's digital collection. So really my process was writing all the different problems that a digital collection has, you know, that uh, patrons li- might not be aware of it, mm. the staff training aspect to it, the fact that oftentimes it's tough for libraries to admit, but they're there are some, you know, uh, for-profit versions that are just easier to use and right. better competitors. Yeah. So anyways, I listed all of these problems, and then I thought about the best ways to tackle them, and that was kind of the outline of the book. And then, you know, part of that was what I had done at Mastic, the mistakes I had made, what I learned from it, and then just looking around the country at some of the best practices that were going on. One thing that I, I found interesting about your book was that um, you did talk about um, device-centered training, which you just mentioned earlier. Can right. you explain a little bit about what device-centered training is? So, you know, I had mentioned that when you train, when you have all these different services and you spend time training on Zinio and Freegal and Flipster, you know, your e-books and your e-magazines and your streaming products, and then they keep changing mm. None of that training has a particularly long shelf life, and it doesn't really even match the experience because on a patron that's having a problem using your service on a computer versus to having trouble on a tablet, two entirely different things. So really, I thought we had to start our training on the devices our patrons are using Um, because just look at your iPad, for example. If you had a first-generation iPad, where you have, what are we up to, iPad Air at this point? Yeah. Air 2, yeah, Air 2, Air, two, yeah. two, Air Pro, then it's Air the Pro. Yeah. Now that the Pro, the, yeah, so they've actually gone two generations after I think the Air 19 two. versions is where we're at, really. Yeah, something yeah, like that. that. Yeah. Perfect. That's 19 versions of iTunes, right, today? <laughs> <laughs> but um, so you look at your, your, your iPad, for example, and if we're talking about the basics, uh, Chris, of how to get into settings, how to connect to Wi-Fi, how to download an app, how to use the Safari browser. How different is that from generation one to the current? It's right. really not terribly different. So if I t- train you on a device, that has a heck of a lot longer shelf life to it. 
And then when a patron comes in and is having a problem with the service, if you already know how to use the iPad and they're trying to just get ebooks on their iPad, well now at least you can connect them to the Wi-Fi at the library, you can locate the app for OverDrive, mm. you can install it, and then largely you're using the information that's already on OverDrive's website, the walkthrough. I don't know why we, we spend a lot of time hoping, you know, trying to force folks to memorize stuff when it's, right. it's not worth it. The most up-to-date source on OverDrive, for example, is going to be OverDrive's help site. And when the process changes, uh, they're going to change it there. So if you're pairing, uh, you know, the, the understanding of the device that your patrons are using mm -hmm. and then just curating the information, mm -hmm. that's what librarians have always been good at is either knowing the answer or finding the appropriate referral information. Yeah. That's, the, that's training that lasts the longest. So device-centered training is obviously centered on learning devices and really dealing with the 95%, okay? You can never, we, I think we had talked about what happens when somebody walks in, or maybe it was even before we started the podcast, when somebody has their Kodak tablet. That, that's tough to prepare against. Right. Uh, sure. um, but that's in a minority. If you look at, you know, uh, taking ebook collection, for example, if you can handle your Nook, your Kindle, your Kindle Fire, mm. um, your iPad, or at least Apple device, and an Android device, you know, with a, a fairly recent operating system, that's 95, 97% of all the folks that'll walk through the room. That's true. Um, and that's really the way to go. Okay. That does make some, some sense because if you can base it upon their device and then deal with all the things that device can do, that makes it a little bit easier for the patron, too. It takes a lot of the stress off of them. Mm -hmm. Well, it's easy as just doing this. Well, you, you don't know about Hoopla? Let's look at Hoopla. Press this. Let's do this. See how easy it is? Now, one thing that I like to do, and we do here at the Sachin Public Library, is we always have a handout. Do you create handouts for patrons? Right. So we do. Um, what we ultimately did was, for a time, and it's gotten better, um, but a lot of the services we were using early on, their support materials were pretty terrible. Um, their sites were difficult to navigate. So where you know, they you're being kind, you know. Oh, I know. <laughs> yeah, so be politically correct. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm not naming names here. So, but, where <laughs> <laughs> but where those sites were deficient, we made our own. Uh, we, you know, we set up a WordPress support site, and we gave our own referral information. And when we did it. We did it uh, in a way that was printable. Um, so we would oftentimes not just say click here, but we would actually have the URL. Mm. So it worked great if you were doing support by the phone. You could follow along. It had screenshots. The patron was there. You could print it out for them to take home. Um, if they were emailing us a question, you could send it that way. Mm. Okay. <coughs> Sorry. Um, so... When we're talking about one thing that uh, we had talked about, we always talk about this in, in the library world, uh, about marketing. Mm -hmm. um, and it's one of the things that I've talked about in, in previous podcasts where, yeah. you know, we're really good, libraries, I mean, are really good at marketing to the people who already come into the building. Right. The trick is to reach out to those people who aren't coming in and trying to pull them in. Mm. Now, it seems like in your library, you're getting a very high percentage of usage so that isn't as big um, an issue. But I, I wanted to talk a little bit about how 
you said you had someone who handles um, publicity and things like that. Hmm. When you're introducing a new product, like let's say when Hoopla first came out, how would you introduce that to the public? So obviously, you you know you still do traditional methods with a you know you put in your newsletter and you have flyers, but you need to make when you're doing something with a digital collection, you need to make it actionable. Okay, you're, mm. you're using print to explain how to use something digital. It, it doesn't always interface well. So key is is to tell them very quickly what it is, how it works, and why they should use it, and obviously where to find it. Sure. And that's how we make our flyers. They tend to be 50% promotional and 50% instructional, but nice and brief, no more than four steps. Mm. Um, ditto for the newsletter, obviously social media marketing. Um, but take advantage of the media type. I mean, if you have samples, uh, you should always check. Uh, or do you have sample materials? And can you have an ebook chapter? Is it browser based? Can you do it without software that you can put on Facebook? Mm. Um, really got to take advantage of the media type. But more importantly, too, than just when something first comes out and you get really excited and you promote it. It has to be done on an ongoing basis because what tends to happen is when a service, you know, take anything, take ebooks, when it first comes out, uh, people's opinions of it crystallize. And even harder than getting a new customer is winning somebody back. That maybe when, you know, Overdrive, for example, when there's really heavy deer around uh, digital rights management and you needed Adobe Digital Edition. Mm. Oh, yeah, that was you a nightmare. You download to a computer, you need to transfer right. it over. That is seared into that man's you know, man or woman's mind forever. <laughs> and that's how they think that service is. And you need to explain to them that things have changed. Right. Um, when early on you didn't have access, and now we're just picking on Overdrive, but when you didn't have uh, access uh, if you were owned a Kindle. Sure. When that changes, whenever your service changes for the better, you add new materials, um, it's less restrictive, it's easier to use, mm. um, formats have changed. You need to take that as an opportunity to promote both, you know, in the traditional sense in your newsletter. You need to take advantage of it in, you know, the uh, your social media marketing, uh, because folks aren't continually visiting the digital collection, waiting to see if it's changed. It's whatever their last opinion of it was is right. how they think it still is. So you're yeah. constantly fighting that that perception versus the reality of it. No, you just always try you. you Basically, you can't just, it's not a static audience, and people's opinions are varied depending on their experience that they've had with it. Mm -hmm. So you just want to constantly hit on it. Um, and even, you know, not just when a service changes, but when there's a, there's a moment to be had when there's real interest. Um, you know, uh, for example, uh, you know, Prince just died, and there's a new interest in his, uh, his music, and actually from a streaming standpoint a lot of services don't carry his music right. um, but a service like Hoopla does and while there's interest in it you know it's a it's a way of promoting uh, when there's an awards show and you have uh, newest Grammy winners that's an opportunity if you have that digital collection to let folks yeah. know and that's where something like that the immediacy of social media is helpful you know uh, the Grammys come out, and then you let people know two months later in your print newsletter. That's not helpful, <laughs> and that's right. we need to take advantage of. Yeah, what's trending? The right, immediacy yeah. of social yeah. media, um, electronic newsletters, and then with print, you know, print can let you know when the service has changed for the better. Yeah, 
So in, in talking about social media, uh, does your publicity uh, department take care of that? And if so, what, uh, which social media do you use? I mean, obviously Facebook. Right. Do you do you go deeper into Twitter and Instagram and Pinterest and all those other things? So social media right now is a little sprawling for us. Uh, you know, we have a lot of hands uh, involved in it and um, a lot of departments. And really, Facebook is still king in terms of, you know, your social media marketing. Yeah, there was just a report today that said, uh, it's a news article that said, why is Facebook making money and no one else? Mm. So, you know, it really is kind of begs the question, you know, if somebody dies on Twitter, does anybody hear it? Right. Right. And and Twitter isn't terribly good at just, you know, and this is taking paid ads out of the equation, but Twitter isn't terribly good at focusing on individuals. You know, it, it's kind of like screaming something to the, the world. Right. What Twitter's great at is informing the rest of your social media marketing. Twitter is kind of the pulse of the Internet. Sure. When something happens, when there's breaking news, Again, the, when the Prince hashtags died, come out, immediately yeah. you knew mm -hmm. something was up. Why is Prince trending? Um, and then you, that can inform your greater social media marketing. You can, you know, you can spot the trend and then respond. Mm -hmm. But in terms of promoting materials on Twitter, it's not great. It, um, at best, what I would suggest is when you're writing a post on Twitter for your so for uh, your digital collection, is to treat it like a headline. Because um, that's that's you got that's a good philosophy characters. actually. Yeah. That's yeah. very good philosophy because you're so limited, right? And use abbreviations and and symbols as much as you can, because <laughs> yeah, it, it gets rough. Um, do you know if if your publicity department uses uh, like a Hootsuite or uh, you know something that manages it so they could you know almost burst it out at the same so time or schedule it? Right now, not really. There's not a ton of cross posting on platforms for us. Um, we do pre-schedule um, some Facebook posts, but um, no, we don't use Hootsuite for that purpose, in part because it's a little compartmentalized. Right now, Pinterest is largely used by the children's department, um, but adult also maintains their own. So, yeah, digital, uh, as much as digital services is involved in social media marketing, we don't have ownership of all the sites. Say, it's not the focus. Right. 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 So, another thing that you talked about in your book is something that I was involved with in, in my previous uh, library that I worked at is outreach. And I can say from the experiences that I've had, it, from a professional standpoint and a personal standpoint, it was extremely enriching for me, uh, especially reaching out to seniors, helping seniors with their devices. And I developed relationships that even though I'm no longer with that other library, um, I have maintained through social media relationships with some of these patrons because in, in, in our top 10 list that we'll go over later that, that we have a question regarding who's your favorite and one of my favorites is in that group. Uh, I, I have a favorite here too but you know there are just some people that are you know you can make connections with. So as far as outreach goes I think it's extremely important for the library to get into the community and go to places where people don't necessarily have the opportunity to get to the library, whether, whether it's a disability or their age is, is hindering them or there's another problem, you know, other types of problems. If libraries can get out to a community center or a center for a planned, you know, uh, for a gated community or something like that, I think that can only be a win-win mm -hmm. for both the participant coming from the library and the people participating as patrons. Now, you discussed that in your book, talking about, you know, digital marketing, taking it one step further and going to outreach. 
Tell me how you deal with outreach. So outreach is so important with digital collections because it's a little bit of a paradox because folks that are maybe distant from the library or have mobility issues getting to the library could really stand to benefit from a collection that doesn't require them to visit the library. Sure. But again, as we've mentioned, libraries are so good at promoting within the library, marketing the library within the library, that you often fail to connect with these folks. So by getting out into the community, it really gives you an opportunity. Now, obviously, it poses its own challenges, not least of which is Wi-Fi. <laughs> right. Oh, <laughs> so, yeah. That was always an issue. You know, uh, occasionally, depending if we're on a, at a Chamber of Commerce meeting or um, at a school, we sometimes ha have a prearranged we'll have access. But it's always good to have a backup plan. And, I mean, we've even taken as far as going to the beach. We have a... You know, Fire Island uh, National Park right there. So we've even gone to the beach to um, market the library. In those cases, we're bringing a wireless hotspot, mobile hotspot. More importantly, do you get to wear shorts? On beach days, yes. Nice. nice. Yes. That's what I'm talking Flip about. Flip-flops and shorts. Nice. Um, give you, to give you a T-shirt or something that says Mastic Marichi Shirley Community Library? Yep, yep. Really have, small uh, font. We have a, uh, typically we promote the Summer Reading Club. So we have a Summer <laughs> Reading Club uh, T-shirt. Um, wow. But that's great, though, you even go to the beach. Yeah, so one of the issues, though, is always going to be, even when you get out there to the community, one of the barriers to access for a library is you need to be a card holder. And especially when you're doing outreach, when it's something that's a pop-up, there's a difference between when you're just showing up somewhere, you know, kind of crashing the things, um, or something that's planned. When we have something prearranged, uh, it gives folks, they, they know you're going to be there. Um, when you're just showing up, you can't really have an expectation of folks can have a library card on them. Or their iPad. Their, right. Yeah. Or even, or have to, you know, do you have two forms of ID on you? Right. I wasn't planning <laughs> on signing up for a library Utility bill. Today. Did you bring a utility bill? Exactly. Yeah. So that's where just being able to get access to somebody with a provisional library card is super important. Mm. And in Suffolk County, you know, you're able to actually sign up for a 30-day provisional library card and get using the digital collection immediately. So that's something we've always taken advantage of. Um, you know, you type in your address, pulls you up on the map, tells you who your home library is. Hopefully it's us. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, when we're at Fire Island, you get all sorts. Um, and then get them using that collection right away if it's something they're interested in. Um, when it's more of a plan setting, when at all possible now with mobile circ uh, mobile ILS systems, you can in fact grant a card holder, you know, grant a full library card on site. Hmm. Um, you know, because even with the provisional, they still got to come back and within 30 days with those two forms of ID. Right. So there's two different ways, you know, when you're, when you're popping up, I think oftentimes you want to think of just letting people know about your collection, getting them provisional access to it. Um, when it's something that's more planned, uh, a visit to a senior center, recreation center, a nutrition center, school, you can, you know, you can uh, do a little more planning, have them a little more prepped. Yeah. Okay. So the one thing that we really haven't touched on, um, you know, is, is budget, mm -hmm. which is, you know, can be a dirty word sometimes because you're talking about how much you're going to have available to curate and maintain what you already have. 
So, you know, I know I can speak that, you know, to, with Sachem that there is always a budgetary concern, and I'm sure at Emma Clark there is the same issue with regard to any department for anything that you're going to do. Look, look at all the things we have to meet now. Right. You know, you've got the tax cap, and you've got the incentive program, you've got all these things coming down on, you know, administration and, and boards to meet those stringent, you know. Um, yeah, so it's interesting. Right. So, so now that we're introducing, you know, digital products, um, along with our traditional services and traditional databases that we've always provided for patrons over the years, um, going as far back as even thinking about the, the CD-ROM towers with, you know, InfoTrack and, and some of the other original databases. You know, things have evolved to the point where it's all digital and it's now accessed through, through the web. You know, those are all subscriptions. So the subscriptions obviously are going to cost money. So as we move further, from going in, from just staying with research things and moving towards entertainment type things with your Hooplas, with your Zinios, with your Freegal, uh, Overdrive, and any other number of, of databases that are out there, whether it's educational or for entertainment, um, you know, it, there is always a concern with regard to budget. How does that work with your department? Do you, um, is that something that's not really dealt with in your department, or is that something that's part of your budget? No, so actually, for the most part, digital collections are just the same as the book budget in that they're partitioned between departments. Um, digital services, almost the entirety of our budget is focused on programs. Um, and by programs, really, we're looking at, we almost look at it as training, training staff, training patrons. So that's where the, uh, the majority of our money goes. Uh, digital collections, really, it, it does pose a challenge because in my experience, particularly with streaming movies, it used to be where, you know, we always had a struggle where did you buy a DVD, do you buy right. a VHS tape, do you buy a Blu-ray? But eventually it evens out in that, you know, uh, somebody that's checking out uh, a movie on Blu-ray is checking it out on VHS. Right. I think in part because... We don't have the newest releases yet as a matter of streaming uh, media, at least streaming movies, I should say. It's more of a complementary service, so it doesn't seem like it offsets y your analog circulation. They're almost different collections at this yeah. point. Right? Yeah. Right. Yeah, it's just a matter of convenience. Um, right. Ebook, on the other hand, you know, be, I, I, it, it's a matter of convenience. You get it in ebook, if you get it in digital, if you get it in print. I think a lot of people, and the trend has been, People are open to both formats. They're mm -hmm. not exclusive. Very few people that are exclusively e, you know, e media and exclusively print. Well, you know, in, in talking about, you know, the different media, DVD versus Blu-ray versus streaming media, I think, and we actually talked about this in our first episode with regard to Amazon. You know, there seems to be, uh, you know, people pay for Amazon Prime and they pay for Netflix or Hulu Plus or whatever it is. So, you know, do you think that there's a, it, there's a balance or with regard to people pay, with pay services and with what the libraries offer for, in, if, as I'm holding up my quote fingers, mm. free, because um, obviously it is paid through tax dollars. Um, so is it, do you feel your goal to complement or supplement what people may be paying subscriptions for? versus trying to win them over and saying, here it is for free. What do you think about that? 
So whenever we add a digital collection, one of the things you have to look at it is, even when we do training, we try to build salespeople into it. You look at a service, and any service has strengths and it has flaws. And, you know, you got to be a little bit of a car salesman, okay? If, um, if I'm trying to buy a, a car, and you're trying to sell me a car, and it's pretty clear you've never driven a car, I'm probably not buying from you. It's <laughs> a, a good way of putting you it. You know, we're all, we're all family guys here, right? Yeah, so yeah, sure. if I'm trying to sell you a sports car, and, you know, Bob, how many kids you got? Three. I have three, yeah. Chris? Two. Okay. Yeah, I, I just got yeah. one, but, right. uh, yeah. you know, no sports cars right now. Maybe we'll save that for midlife crisis. Right, <laughs> 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 I'm not allowed to comment. I'm going to remove I'm, myself well, from comments. Yeah, Bob, Bob really can't talk about that. <laughs> I'm not allowed to talk about that. So, likewise, you want to know a collection well enough that you might say, you know, Hoopla's got some great children's content, you know, when you see somebody that's got kids. Mm. Um or when you have somebody that's interested in horror, you know that that you know, collection that you have really has some of the top authors. So just knowing a collection well enough allows you to sell it. Yeah. Um, and if you know, so you're not just you're not trying to force feed somebody something they're not going to like. You can't trick somebody into right. you, you can actually you can trick somebody into using a collection, but just once. Right. <laughs> right. While they're standing in front of you. And then right. So it. you need yeah. to to be cognizant of a service's benefits and its flaws. It's good and bad. Um, and in terms of when you're facing a, a commercial competitor, that's where you just have to take away all the things that maybe make your service less convenient or not as attractive and see what you can do to make it better. Mm. Um, you know, because if I just want to check out a book from the library, what do I need? I need two forms of ID to get my library card, and then I can just walk right up and check it out. Um, if I want to check out an ebook, I still need those two forms of ID and get my library card. Um, now I need a device, and now I may need an app. Right. I need an email address so yeah. I can create a username for that app. I need a password mm -hmm. for my email address and for my account. Mm. Um, so it's I've just added three or four different obstacles. Now, typically with a lot of these services, it's just getting people over the hump. Right. Just that initial painful experience of setting up the account. Right. Oh, yeah. And then you're and checking off a box that... Right. Well, but you know, with overdrive, uh, you know, you can remember, uh, click the box and it remembers their password. And now for them, you've taken out a, a lot step, of those yeah. steps. Yeah. Yeah. That is the biggest, well, yeah, that is one of the biggest struggles is actually getting them to use it. You know, it's, it's the old uh, bringing the horse to water, but seeing, you know, making them drink. Well, one of the things we've done too is we've just kind of, we've taken a step back and you know, in terms of staff training, remember we went device-centered. And with our patron instruction, we've done the same. We've done a lot of tablet classes, um, which is of interest. Everybody wants to learn about how to use their iPad. and wants to, One of the experiences we had early on was we were doing tech appointments, and we had somebody want to use our ebook collection, and they showed up with an iPad in the box. Now, on the one hand, that's awesome that they bought an iPad, and their first thought was the library, right? That's what we want but on the other hand if your patrons are getting devices and then they're attempting to use a digital collection and they don't have the prerequisite skills right, yeah. they're going to fail and they're going to be frustrated and it might be even independent of whether the service they're trying to use is easy to use or not mm -hmm. so just from a programming standpoint we knew that there was a lot of interest in tablet classes 
And then in terms of boosting the circulation of a digital collection, we thought if we train folks up, and at the end of a class on an iPad Basics or Android Basics or Intro to Kindle Fire, we just promote some of the relevant services. And anybody that wants a little more information can take a flyer and go, and maybe they're comfortable enough to do that from home or comfortable enough to use a support site. Or if they want to uh, schedule a one-on-one appointment, absolutely. Because a one-on-one appointment where you get somebody to use your digital collection is such a wise investment. It's worth an hour to create a lifelong user of your Mm. digital collection. Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. Okay, so I have uh, just one more question to ask you uh, before we move on to um, our top ten librarian questions. (laughs) Yes, I finally came up with a name of it. It was a very long ride back from Canton, New York, from the last uh, the last podcast, and, and I'm not so sure that the the name I have for the top ten list is any better than anything else. But um, anyway, we'll find out about that in a couple minutes. The the one question that I wanted to ask you that I kind of saved for the end, because I think if anybody that's listening is considering developing a department like the department that you are the head of. You know, what would you tell a library that is considering creating a department like the one you manage? So one of the most important things is just giving whoever you're hiring, well, first off, when you look at the the person you're hiring, um, my background was in history. I wasn't a techie guy, but I'm somebody that likes to continue to learn, and that's important. I know Bob in the past has talked about sometimes there's an inclination to try to hire your way out of a problem, and what do you do when you, when I was hired, there wasn't 3D printing, wasn't a thing, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so if you're just hiring and then when the next emerging technology comes out, do you just wring your hands? Do you, right. do you fire that person? Do you hire somebody to replace them? So when you're thinking about starting a digital services department, hire somebody that is the type of person that wants to continue to learn. And then if, as administration, you need to, give that person time and opportunity to continue to learn. If all of their waking hours are spent (laughs) doing stuff and they have no time to to look for trends, to learn a new thing, you're kind of setting them up for failure. So you need to find somebody that's a lifelong learner Mm -hmm. and you need to give them the time and opportunity to continue to adapt. It's really good advice. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, that certainly was a lot of, a lot of information that you gave to us. I appreciate that, and um, I really appreciate you sharing everything that, that you've experienced so far with, with doing what you're doing over at Master, because it really is quite amazing. And with the book too. I mean, it, it, there's so much invaluable information in there for people who may aren't sure if they're going to get into the digital end of things, or people who are struggling training, you know, staff members or working on a training program for for patrons. I know that I went through it. I, I took a couple of tidbits and, you know, made some notes and, and took some of the advice that was in the book. So thank you for putting it out there. I, I think it's something, if you haven't made it part of your um, professional collection yet, it is something that you should um, make part of it. And again, the book's name is Making the Most of Digital Collections Through Training and Outreach, The Innovative Librarian's Guide by Nick Tanzi. So we are going to take a short break. And then when we come back, we're going to be asking Nick our top ten librarian questions. Yeah, that's the name that I came up with after a <laughs> seven-and-a-half-hour drive down from Canton. Oh, boy. Sounds sleepy. Yeah. So we have to come up with a sexier name, I think. Okay. So anyway, 
If you're a frequent listener of the podcast, then you know that we ask these questions of all our guests. So we will be back in just a moment. with Nick Tanzi. Uh, Nick, we're going to hit you with our top 10 questions. So you're our next victim. Are you ready? Oh, boy. Okay. <laughs> so these questions were inspired by the website, The Literary Hub, which is a website with very interesting library-related stories and interviews. You can see their work by visiting www.lithub.com. Uh, check them out because they do some amazing work for librarians and the library world in general. Thank you, Library Hub. So, Nick, here we go. Uh, first question, what did you want to be when you were a child, when you grew up? Probably a ninja. Um, <laughs> I love it. That's great. That's why I love these questions. Yeah, um, ninja or an astronaut, probably. Yeah. Not bad. So what was your first memory of the library, and who brought you to the library for the first time? Uh, so actually, I remember playing uh, some PC games on floppy. Um, and it would have been my mom that brought me. What's a floppy? I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. I can't quite yeah. recall. Are we talking uh, three and a half or five and a quarter? You guys are so old. My nine-year-old's going, what's a floppy? What's a three and a half? What's a five? Yeah, this is great. Yeah, isn't that wonderful? Okay. So Scary. when when did you decide to become a librarian? Did my uh, question. Oh, I'm sorry. No, That's not your question. When did you first become? When did you first decide to become a librarian? <laughs> you know, you know, Bob asked it with a little more gravitas. That's right. <laughs> uh, well, I was finishing up my uh, my history degree, and you know, I had maybe a thought of going into law, and then just didn't you know didn't feel right, and uh, at the time I was working at the library, and you know, it just seemed like something that could be. Uh, like a grow into. Okay. So who is your favorite fictional librarian? Uh, Somebody's got to say Noah Wiley at some point, right? Mm -hmm. Nobody's saying that. Batgirl. Um, Nobody's ever uh, said it. Batgirl. Batgirl. That's a tough one. Uh, I don't know. We just started a game with the own season six, right? So maybe like a maester. Is that there close enough That's to... Uh, that works. That's not so okay. bad. Uh, what would you be doing if you were not a librarian? <sighs> maybe law, right? You said law. Yeah, maybe. Maybe but maybe I would be a burned-out lawyer, and then I would go That's right. to library school. <laughs> and then you can go back to question number two, which was the, the second career question, right? Yeah. Right, yeah, yeah sure. sure. <laughs> what is your favorite section of the library besides the section that's assigned to you, if you even have one assigned to you anymore? Yeah, no, really, it's a... We're curating the digital branch, so I don't, probably sci-fi. Probably sci-fi. Hmm. Um, okay, so number six, if you had infinite space and an infinite budget, what would you add to the library? 
I know what you're going to say, like a totally different library. Right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I've been itching to start a fab lab. Um, obviously, I'd love to just have a wall of 3D printers and yeah. laser cutters and all that jazz. Um, that is a the lot dream. of loud space. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, that would be it. That's enough. That's cool. Okay, what do you love about your library? You know, I just love that we have a community that really needs the library and is just so appreciative of it. We have so much foot traffic, and it's just, you know, when you go into public service, I'd like to think you're doing it because you want to work with the public and you want to change lives. And, you know, with the, a lot of the continuing ed we're doing and the access to technology, it's really, uh, I feel like we're doing that. Yeah. Uh, what is the weirdest thing that has happened in your library? Oh, boy. Um, Not necessarily the worst thing. Yeah, I know. The weirdest, no. yeah. The weirdest. The one that takes the most explanation. Weirdest, I had a person that came right in. So I'm at the adult reference desk. So basically they came directly from the entrance right up to me and said, man, this is a big library. How do you get out of it? <laughs> That's great. Uh, and that's coming from somebody that's got a bad sense of direction, but that, that really uh, that's a good walked one. 100 feet and then was lost. That's great. Yeah. That's great. Okay. So I think we talked about this a little bit earlier, but who was your favorite regular patron? You don't uh, have to mention names, just, you know. No, no, no. I mean, honestly, when I worked in children's, not so much. There's more of a, a patron type. But mm -hmm. when we had those, you know, fifth grade class visits, I think that maybe that was a lot those kids still had a sense of wonder about going into the library. Mm -hmm. Like it, it was like walking into a theme park. <laughs> <laughs> and when they're leaving, they're screaming because they don't want to leave. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, that's... Uh, There's something to be said for that, you know. People go, oh, these kids are screaming. But no, they don't want to leave. That's right. great. Yeah. That really is wonderful. That's pretty good. Um, so, number 10 and possibly the most important question, what are people without library cards missing out on? Oh, boy. Yeah. I mean, Besides everything. You can't get out yeah, that easy. Yeah, you can't do everything. Yeah. No, I mean, at this point, you know. Beach visits. Yeah. Right, the visiting the library at the beach. Seeing a librarian in shorts. Where, that <laughs> <laughs> no, it's just uh, particularly now with the focus on technology and lifelong learning, you really, you know, to me, when you stop learning things, uh, you just, that's a it's time to get life. a shovel of dirt yeah, thrown yeah. on yeah. you. Yeah, I wouldn't go that far, but. <laughs> <laughs> that's very grim. Very grim. But really, I mean, that's 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 what life is, is, is new experiences and new information. And, you know, t to cut yourself off from that is, uh, would be a shame. Especially yeah. in today's age where, you know, everything is information. Well, access is so easy. I mean, especially at Mastics as well. You know, like you've heard, it's so easy. Why aren't people? Uh, obviously, they are. But why aren't yeah. more libraries taking uh, cues from these folks? Sure. You know, yeah. Absolutely. Okay, well, thanks for being such a good sport and answering uh, our list of questions. Um, it, it really is it's fun to have you because we're friends. Uh, we've known each other for a while, so it's really nice to actually... Acquaintances. Okay. So it really is kind of nice to, you know, talk with this kind of forum. 
How was your stay at the Pines Inn up in Lake Placid? Oh, boy. Is that a nice place? <laughs> <laughs> I knew that it was going to come up. I had to say something. I remember just, right, your room had the snowblower on the roof outside the window, right? Well, so we, well, we decided it was a snowblower. There was a chance it was a wood chipper. Is that right? We thought it was a wood chipper, yeah. yeah. Well, Nick yeah. and I spoke up at Lake Placid, and he he had the wood chipper or, I suppose, the snowblower now outside his room. Well, we were trying to figure out who was going to get murdered, but I had the double bed. Yeah. so we. But you had, like, the drop of blood on your dresser or something like that. I had like the that. drop of blood on the dresser, but I had the double bed, yeah. so I could, like, make one a decoy. Yeah, and I had the extra door that went to the elevator that I put my suitcases in front of because, you know, it was <laughs> open in the middle of the night and I was going to be killed. So, wow. Yeah, that was good times. That, that, that's a fun one. Wow. Believe it or not, that's all the time we have for this edition. <laughs> uh, if you have any questions or comments on our show, uh, go to the Contact Us section on the website at thelibrarypros.com. Uh, <clears throat> we'll, we'll, ha- we'll have uh, notes and links from today's uh, episode, anything that we talked about today, including the link to uh, your book uh, on Amazon. Thank you. In case people want to get it for their collection. Uh, you also want to check us out on Twitter at The Library Pros and on Facebook at facebook.com slash thelibrarypros. And so you don't miss a thing, don't forget to subscribe on RSS, iTunes, Android, email, and now on Google Play, which has just released this past week. Uh, so that's really kind of exciting. We're now on Google Play. It's uh, not, I haven't checked it in the last few days, but it seems to be getting a little bit easier to find us because mm-hmm. I think their rollout was kind of slow and clunky. Yeah. Um, so on our next episode, we're going to have Melanie Cardone Leathers, the local history librarian and technology guru from the Longwood Public Library. Uh, We're going to be discussing everything from local history to archiving to teaching classes in technology. So remember, the opinions stated by the library pros and their guests are solely those of Chris and Bob and Nick and are not those of the Sachem Public Library, the Emma S. Clark Public Library, or the Mastic Marich's Shirley Community Community Library. Library. Got it. So with that, we will see you next time. You've been listening to the Library Pros Podcast. The Library Pros are brought to you by Pippet Productions and by the Library Pros themselves, Krista Cristofaro and Bob Johnson. Special thanks to Sachem Public Library for providing space for this podcast. Until the next turn of the page, I'm your announcer, Carlton Welch. <laughs>